the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I've ever seen. There's this weird doppelganger effect when I watch the movie. It's kind of like the movie I wrote, but not at all like the movie I wrote. (laughs) It has no patience for subtlety. It has no patience for the quiet moments. It has no patience, period. to the postmodern Prometheus. I'm Asha. I'm Nancy. And that opening quote was from Frank Darabont, who was the original screenwriter of Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of 1994. And that will be the adaptation that we're discussing today. Mm. So yeah, so the thing with this particular movie is it sets itself up as being i guess you know closer to the closer to fidelity with more fidelity with the text i suppose you say and nancy do you think it achieves that promise <laughs> <laughs> do you i definitely do not so i think you're right because it calls itself mary shelley's frankenstein it's kind of instantly making a claim to be i guess a more faithful adaptation of the original Mm. novel um probably sort of in contrast with the um 1931 um film the film series that started in 1931 with james wales frankenstein yeah universal films and the hame horror films yeah which really sort of um permeates uh, popular culture so this was probably positioned to kind of be like let's go back to the original text and you know tell the story of frankenstein as mary shelley intended mm. well in a few interviews i've read with uh old kenny kenny Branagh, he has said that their or the creative's intention with this one was i think well, they say to be in more line with the spirit of Mary Shelley's novel, be, um, present a more faithful adaptation mm-hmm. of the spirit of Mary Shelley's novel. And I think in particular, in a quote here and there, he does use the word spirit rather than like exact story. And there are, I think, re- pretty good reasons for doing it that way. I think something, yeah, they did want to do is present a more faithful adaptation while still... I guess in a way having the cake and eating it too in that they're representing it for a contemporary modern audience because Mm. of course you know every text kind of belongs within an intertext of itself I I 100% stole that quote and I don't remember who said it but in that it was written for its contemporaries not for an audience of people 200 years later give or take so you have to of course you have to change things so that it is more relatable to a modern audience. And this was something I believe the creatives of this movie were quite aware of. And that's why there are some interesting uh, thematic changes. Mm -hmm. They do try to capture the themes of the novel, but they tweak little things with like character psychology and like plot here and there to, I guess in their minds, make it more relevant or, you know, whatsoever. Mm. Whether it um, achieves this, I think is a bit debatable, but I think with adaptations of novels that do um, go for fidelity or are trying to, you know, be faithful or what have you, it's particularly interesting 
to just look at the little changes because there just have to be little changes. Mm. It's in a way it's a lot easier to adapt something and make it very different or make it unique because you know you're just it's inspired by and you're telling your own story when you are trying to fully tell someone else's story I think it's a lot more challenging and I think this book in particular is very difficult to adapt um you know not word for word but you know what I mean mm. um between mediums and make it compelling mm. uh this movie me and Nancy both agree uh, we like the first half an hour and then sort of less so as it goes on yeah well I think what you're saying about the you know um translating between mediums is really important here because I think it's uh limited by the medium of film in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways um and in particular the sort of constraints around probably the production to make it more of a hollywood movie so Mm -hmm. i think it takes on a lot of the sort of hollywood movie tropes or um I guess, genre characteristics without fully considering what that means for the um, adaptation um, and Mm. what that means, like, in transforming the original themes of the novel. Um, Because I think, like you said, if their intention was to be sort of thematically faithful to Mary Shelley... um, I don't think they succeeded because (laughs) of this sort of inability to um, take into account what it would mean to translate to another medium. Um, Mm. So from that perspective, I don't think it's a particularly successful adaptation um, or a film, really. (laughs) Yeah, um, this this film didn't do great amongst uh, academics, audiences, Frankenstein fans, non-Frankenstein, no one, no one really cared for this film, hmm. um, which is a shame because you, it's one of those films you can tell like it was people making it were very passionate about it. Like it's uh, at least that's what I get from it, and that's why I still I have a very I have a soft spot for this film. I still do like it, and I think it's I do actually think it's a bit underrated for like what it is. Um, I don't think it entirely knows what it is. But I think if you take it as just a genre film made by Kenneth Branagh, it's, like, quite entertaining. And I sort of appreciate what it was trying to do and think it, you know, achieved what it was trying to do to some extent. But, um, I don't know, so this was the very first uh, anything Frankenstein I ever came across mm. in life. And so I... And so, and it did make me really like the story. Like, I think if you watch this film, having not read the book or knowing much about it, it's a bit more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't. I can't speak for everyone, but that was my experience. I really liked it the first time I saw it because I knew nothing of Frankenstein, and it made me interested in Frankenstein. And it's now become like one of my favorite sort of books and stories. So. You know, I have a I have love for this film because of that, and there are also things about it I do really like, and things that it does that I think make it really unique and expand on the text in really good ways. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a bit of a failure. <laughs> 
I think that's a really interesting perspective that you're coming from as it's kind of the first, yeah, the first Frankenstein thing you've ever come across because Mm. I think to me this was sort of like the third or fourth adaptation that I'd seen. So it wasn't, yeah, I think when... I think I forced you to watch it, didn't I? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What a great friend you are. And um, so... I think when I take it, so my first point of reference is the novel. And so when I compare it to that, it just doesn't really work for me. And I think for me as well as a film, it's kind of boring. Um, mm, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't enjoy it as a film. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't care for this. <laughs> I'm yeah. giving you like Mr. Darcy impression. <laughs> hmm. It's not interesting enough to tempt. It's not quite faithful enough to tempt me. <laughs> I don't know why my Mr. Darcy voice is just a Snape impression. I think I'm cross wiring my like Jane Austen movie adaptations. <laughs> I don't understand why you think my in inner voice is Mr. Darcy's voice either. <laughs> no, but it's like Snape doing Mr. Darcy. Or rather, Alan Rickman Snape doing Mr. Darcy is what I think your internal monologue sounds like. Uh, sidestep them. Okay. Alan well, Rickman would have made a, a very good Mr. Darcy. <laughs> R.I.P. Aww. Well, he was um, Colonel Brandon. Yes, but I, I know that's what I meant by like my my Jane Austen crosswire. Yeah, because no, I no. always associate Alan Rickman with like Jane Austen, and then I realize I'm quoting the wrong person. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think. Sorry, we're getting really sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's all connected. We'll tie it back. We can tie it back. Well, no, because I mean, we were talking about Emma Thompson, who was married to <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, who left Emma Thompson for Helena Bonham Carter in this movie, and we're back. <laughs> okay, all right. So, um, so before we start, well, we've already started. Okay, so Ooh, before, before, before we, go- we start, I'm just going to let my cat out of my room, but you can begin. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so. Before we go any further with our discussion, I think we should start with a summary of the film plot. So, largely, it's... um, Unlike a lot of adaptations, it kind of starts off with Walton's... um, Walton! (laughs) ...framing device, um, as played by Aidan Quinn, who is very young-looking here. He looks like Richard Armitage. Mm-hmm. And it's distracting. Uh, wish it was Richard Armitage. Same. Armitage. <laughs> Anywho, so let me just read my notes here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Too much of a behind the scenes. All right. So it starts off in 1794. Captain Walton is leading an expedition to the North Pole and he comes across Victor Frankenstein. Um, And as in the novel, he takes Victor onto his ship and Victor tells Walton his story. Um, Then we go into a flashback, uh, which is the entire film generally. (laughs) Yes. 
Victor has a happy childhood growing up in Geneva where his family, Baron Frankenstein, is a doctor. Um, he's good friends with Justine as a child and Elizabeth is then brought into the family. This was actually my question. Is um, Justine and Justine's mum, are they like family friends or do they like work for the Frankensteins? No, I think it's they're super still... unclear. They're still family servants because I think... Okay. Yeah, they're not at the same social class as the rest of the Frankenstein family, but they are, like, actual close childhood companions, um, Mm. unlike in the novel where we don't get to see Justine in their family um, as a child at all. But getting sidetracked. So, Mm. yeah, as they grow up, Victor and Elizabeth fall in love. Um, Just a note that Clavel is not a childhood friend in this adaptation, um, and then no, he's a college bro, <laughs> but more of him later. But just as Victor is about to go to university, his mother dies giving birth to William. And this Damn is William. shown to be quite a traumatic experience um, with uh, Baron Frankenstein sort of running out and he's covered in blood and then Victor being covered in blood. Um so, after a few years, Victor then leaves for university where he meets Professor Waldman, who is also interested in creating life um, and who has already done a lot of the work behind creating life. So, in this mm. adaptation, Victor kind of steals his work, um, the work of Professor Waldman. <laughs> he expands on his work, you know. No one, no one created the A-bomb in a day. Why did I choose that invention? <laughs> well, because it's quite a um, collaborative effort, you know? Yeah. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> so, if I may interject a tiny bit. Um, oh, so what's Waldman? stopping you? <laughs> Waldman in this one is played by John Cleese for yep. some reason. But with, like, a chin prosthetic and, like, teeth prosthetics so that he looks angry he well john cleese looks really angry to me anyway but i do recognize him yeah no you don't recognize him because he's got like prosthetics because they were just like oh it's too distracting having john cleese playing this role which you know i think the cheaper option there would be like okay don't cast john cleese they should have hired um who's that guy the guy who plays filch I reckon oh, yes. he's, like, the grumpy old man go-to. Mm, and, it's like, speaking of Harry Potter, the, like, actor playing Kremp is um, Cornelius Fudge. Oh, yeah. Like, and he's also, he's pretty much playing Cornelius Fudge, too. <laughs> like, he's pretty much just, like, yelling at Victor the whole time. He, the you-know-who is not back. <laughs> you can't bring people back from the dead. <laughs> okay. Let's, this this plots it off says it's going to go on forever, and it's already... I think already... it's actually going, like, quite slippily through it. Oh, you know what was funny about, like, the college bit, though? Brief, brief interjection, <laughs> brief interjection. Let me just find my page. Let me just find my page. I took some very detailed notes for this. If you must. 
No, this is like not any like in extra textual things. This is something like in the thing that I just thought was weird. Oh yeah, the school, the medical school motto is "knowledge in power only through God," mm-hmm. which is like even for like this context is a bit just kind of like hammer of the head. Like, no, you cannot reanimate the dead at this school. God damn it, Potter. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> no, I never noticed that before, so that's very good detail, actually. Thank um, you. Yay, Pat. Anyway, so then at this university, he becomes friends with Henry Clavel, who is a fellow medical student who uh, faints at the sight of Bullard. Um, <laughs> Best character in the film. Clavel also kind of knows what Victor and Waldman are up to. Um, and as in the book, during this period, Victor sort of neglects his family, um, including Elizabeth and Justine. And Elizabeth ends up sort of writing these letters, um, pretending they're from Victor. Um, so to sort of hold the family together, I guess. Um, to maintain the illusion that he actually cares about his family. Um, so during uh, during their studies, Waldman is killed by a patient who he's trying to treat, and Victor is unable to save him. He yeah, then because they're inoculating against like the plague or what is it? Um, I don't not, not quite the plague, but like an illness. You keep... I'll I'll find it. Keep going. So, yeah. So, Waldman is killed by the patient, and the patient is then hanged. Victor is unable to save Waldman, um, but he then decides to use Waldman's brain and the body of Waldman's now-dead murderer to create the creature. It's what Waldman would have wanted. (laughs) So, Elizabeth then comes to visit during this time, but... uh, Victor pushes her away and manages to bring the creature to life. But soon afterwards, he regrets it pretty much immediately and tries to kill the creature. But the creature manages to escape, but not until after a weird naked fight scene in amniotic fluid. Two bros chilling in amniotic fluid (laughs) all over each other because they're dad and son. (laughs) And it's really disturbing because that fight scene ends with the creature sort of being suspended by chains from the ceiling, still, like, Uh, fully naked. No, that wasn't the fight. That wasn't a fight scene. He was trying to, like, help him stand up. You're confusing two bits. What? No, No, but they were... It was... They weren't... (laughs) Listen here. Listen here, little lady. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, like... Victor's trying to help him up to, like, help him, like, stand and walk, but he keeps, like, slipping over because he's not fully in control of his, like, faculties yet. And then he gets caught up and changed and gets suspended. And then, for some reason, Victor's just like, what have I done? And then kind of rejects him. This is a point in the film where I really don't like because I don't think it's clear or well thought out, like, why they were doing this and how it makes sense based on external readings i sort of know what they were trying to go for and i don't think they achieved it okay that's interesting because i 
as I um oh, I didn't say this, but I watched this movie this morning in about one point seven five speed, and with the sound off. <laughs> and so when that scene happened, I thought it was a fight scene because it straight, becomes a fight scene afterwards. Yeah, straight after that, chill. Yeah, straight after that. So like Victor sort of falls asleep after the creatures ends up suspended in chains he somehow just is like oh well he's kind of suspended in chains now yeah, um, he's just like oh he's pretty much dead i'll deal with it in the morning <laughs> so then he um wakes up in the morning and he's suddenly like oh god and then he has an axe <laughs> and then there's like a fight scene where they're still naked um well the creature's naked victor's kind of got clothes oh maybe he might be topless he's topless yeah so the whole creation scene which is we'll talk about later because it's it's a whole spectacle but yeah victor is just like running around with his abs out (laughs) and it's like super unbelievable and unnecessary (laughs) it was necessary for kenneth brenner's ego Well, like, I like that it, it begins, like, he's doing all the, most of the heavy lifting, like, um, just sort of... Yeah, with his, he was like, very much doing heavy lifting. Yeah. But it begins, like, he's walking into the things with, like, a robe on. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in my notes, I, wrote, I just wrote, like, bring me my sexy robe. <laughs> oh, okay. The fun part is making the baby. <laughs> weird um continuous theme of like long red robes or like coats <laughs> I, I don't know what it sim- it's meant to symbolize i'm just saying it exists yeah because in a lot of scenes elizabeth is wearing red yeah like, towards oh, the beginning Kenneth has a red robe has a red coat and then a robe and then she has a red coat and then at the end has a robe like i don't know it, it is it's a theme. The costumes in this are like pretty t- period um, specific and accurate, I think, um, which is good. I always enjoy period clothing. Yeah, I mean, nothing else. This is like a beautiful looking film, like aesthetically very well done. Like in terms of just the like sort of sets, costumes, mm. the prosthetics, the like makeup of the creature. It's all very well done and grandiose and the like. I don't think the creature looks ugly enough, but let's save that. Get to that now, because we are discussing the creature coming to life. Ah, okay. So, so obviously Victor falls ill after having tried to kill the creature but failed. The creature mm-hmm. escapes, um, and then Victor recovers with the help of Clavel. Victor's still shirtless at this time, by the way. Why? Don't understand. Um, <laughs> Update. Still shirtless. Still shirtless. <laughs> Elizabeth comes to visit Victor. No, she's still there. She doesn't leave. Oh, this she- is what happens when you re- watch things in double time. <laughs> They're both taking care of him. She's just in the other room. Yeah, no, but I mean, it kind of cuts to her sort of taking care of him. Yeah, then they like kiss and stuff and romance. Ugh. Anyway, um, meanwhile... I like the romance in this. You like the romance in this? I think it's... I think they have good chemistry. Probably because they were having an affair at the time. (laughs) Possibly. Allegedly. (laughs) Well, look... At some point after this film happened, Kenneth Brunner did leave his wife for her. 
is all I'm saying. Um, so, after Victor recovers, oh, sorry, while Victor is recovering, the creature is being chased out of town for being ugly. and Because well, they think he has cholera. And that too. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting angle. That is an interesting angle that they, but he kind of like, like, no matter what they are saying to him, he kind of doesn't really fully understand. So he mm. just still feels like he's just being rejected by the townspeople anyway. Mm. Um, so he leaves the town and then he finds refuge in a barn of a rural family. Um, and the DeLacy's here are uh, Felix and Agatha are actually a married couple. Um, there's the grand grandfather who is blind and then um the conceit is that uh the delacy's are teaching their children to read so then the creature is able to sort of learn to read alongside the children which i mm-hmm. think is an interesting um adaptational change well yeah i think it makes more sense best. it makes more sense i think um I think it's, you know, just a basic thing with film is that for minor, for details like that, you do have to simplify things. So, like, you know, it would have wasted way too much time bringing Safi into it Mm. and all that. Like, that works for a novel, but that wouldn't have, I don't think you could make a film or TV, even TV version Mm. of this story and keep Safi in it because it's just, ultimately, it's hard to make that relevant to the story like it does work in the novel but it's just because you have time Mm. and i think the other thing that's interesting about it is that whole um we'll probably get into this later but the whole incest (laughs) subtext here is because like from a meta (laughs) level it is sort of like an incestuous interpretation of the book okay and i just want to reiterate here that this is nancy's interpretation (laughs) no i'm not saying that <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, from a meta-textual level, you kind of mm. see, like, oh, originally they were brother and sister, and then they've adapted it so that they're actually married. And yeah, know. I mean, I, I think it is a significant point that in this one, Elizabeth and Victor are raised. I'm referring to one another as brother or sister, and Elizabeth refers to Mama and Papa Frankenstein as Mum and Dad. Mm. like rather than cousin and aunt and uncle Mm -hmm. so like it's super incesty especially since they're sort of their farewell before victor goes to college is he says something one of them says something like how do brothers and sisters say goodbye to one another maybe they don't have to and then they're like sort of making out being like brother friend and then he gets down on one knee he's like wife and she's like yes and it's a bit just like hmm (laughs) So long as they're happy. But I think it's also interesting, actually, that um, the whole... I think the thing about um, Safi's love story in the novel is that um, she's also, like, an other. And then Mm. in this one, um, in this adaptation, I guess it's pretty minor, but he sees, like, the whole domestic happiness thing without the role of an outsider, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just kind of like a subtle change, but maybe has 
I don't know, broader implications. Anyway, getting back to the plot, mm. um, <laughs> a debt collector... Oh, by the way, when he's... Sorry. Um, a debt he's collector... getting them wooden vegetables and stuff, and they're like, oh, it's the good spirit of the forest, and like, yes. just leave him cookies or flowers. flowers. Same thing, really. And then... Maybe it's cute. And then a mean debt collector comes to visit the family, who gets killed by the creature um, because he's, you know, harming the old man and threatening the little girl. <clears throat> so he gets killed, but then the little girl goes running off to find her parents after this, and then the family see the creature speaking with the blind old man, and they attack him, um, and he gets, I guess, kicked out. Um, and <laughs> Get a job, you little... <laughs> Stop being a freeloader. Um, And then he is angered by this and as revenge he burns down their house. After they have vacated the house, we should uh, specify, because there are some versions where he burns down the house while they're still in there. Right. So they fled kind of in terror and then he burns the house down. uh, Yeah, I mean, it is actually very in keeping with the novel because he, like, runs away, cries in the woods, and then is just like, okay, wait, maybe I can fix this, and then he goes back to try Mm. to fix things and they've, like, left, and so he feels abandoned and then he burns down the house, which is kind of like they didn't have to do it that way, but they did because it is a little bit extra back and forthy. But I like that... They, you know, know, small mercies of following the plot. Well, in the meantime, he also goes away and reads um, Victor's sort of scientific notes about how he's been created. So he kind of finds out about how he was made um, and then he tries to go back. um, But then he sort of, yeah, burns down their house. Um, Then he burns down the house. In the meantime... Yes, he does. Victor and Elizabeth decide to get married, um, but William is killed and Justine is blamed for the crime. Um, So in this version, the creature kind of very creepily looks at Justine while she's sleeping and then very deliberately he... um, I guess he really understands what he's doing in framing Justine. Um, Justine is then hanged without a proper trial in a very disturbing scene, I found. Via lynching mob? Yeah, I found that deeply sad um, as a scene. Yes, well, I mean, it was done for a very specific reason that I don't agree with and I don't think is actually super believable mm. even within the like sort of magical realism of like you know a horror film horror monster film I th- we yeah. can go into this later because this has to do with like a very significant change on like a thematic and character psychology level mm-hmm. of this film mm-hmm. so let's go into that later and just keep going through the plot Okay, so then the creature demands to Victor that he make him a female creation, but not before forcing Victor to literally climb up a huge mountain. Where yeah, he's just like, the, the sea of ice, meet me on the sea of ice. Which is, you know, just like why glaciers. It's, I think in my notes I write, the sea, is, the sea of ice is 
vague as vague. <laughs> so he's just like walking for a very long time. I'm like, mm, someone wanted a bit more pretty cinematography, didn't they, Kenny? Yeah, and then he's like literally climbing up an ice wall with <laughs> ice picks, which are like, this is deeply unnecessary. <laughs> like, here, boy, where'd you go? Come here, come here. Has anyone seen my creature? I've misplaced him. <laughs> anyway, so then Victor. After this conversation, um, as in the novel, Victor kind of goes away and prepares to make the female creature. But when... Though he does it in his dad's attic rather than going away somewhere. Yes. Because time is of the essence. Yes. This makes a lot more sense, I would say, from a, Mm. you know, logic perspective. Just anything Uh perspective. But then uh, when the creature asks... Victor to use Justine's body, um, Victor refuses and kind of stops making the female creature. Yeah, I think this is another sort of lapse in clear um, motivations moments. I think it's this point and the um, when the rejection of the creature in the beginning moments, I think of like the weakest points and it's because I think the maybe the screenwriter and as well as Kenneth Branagh and just everyone involved was really self-conscious about how to do this in a way that like suited how they wanted to present Victor as a character. Mm. More like, on that it's, later. It's, it's weak anyhow. Yep. Um, Proceed. So as revenge, the creature then kills Frankenstein's father and Elizabeth. Although he doesn't, I don't think he graphically kills Frankenstein's father. He sort of, I think you could read it as he's died. Um, yeah, the creature is like at the windows, at the window, like watching Victor and Elizabeth like uh, ride off and then it cuts, pans over to the dad who's like clearly dead and then the creature like uh, closes his eyes. So it's kind of like implicit he's killed him in some way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean... I don't know, the creature's, like, killing styles vary a fair bit, so who's to say? (laughs) He doesn't have one modus operandi. Um, I mean, William was very, was an intact clean murder. (laughs) Elizabeth, on the other hand, let's get into that now. So on Victor and Elizabeth's wedding night, the creature sort of sneaks to where they're spending it in a sort of hotel inn kind of thing um and just (laughs) a seaside resort and just as they're about to uh do the do consummate their marriage um he lures victor away by playing a uh theme which happens to be victor and elizabeth's love theme on a flute um, he then sneaks into the room and rips Elizabeth's heart out and shows it to Victor. That was pretty and gruesome. Says, he and says, I keep my promises. Yes, he does. And then Victor is grieved, obviously. Yeah, I'm particular just to go back to the graphicness of her death. Like, yeah, he sort of drops down on top of her, rips out her heart, shows it to Victor as he like runs in being like, oh shit, my wife, who I shouldn't have left alone. Mm. And sort of, you know, drops it and then like but like shoves Elizabeth off the bed and like oh like her head hits like a candle so then like mm. half her hair's burnt off. It's it's like comparative to the novel where it's sort of like a very quick like it's just like a bruise around her neck like it's very vicious 
Mm. But uh, the plot proceed. And then, Victor, obviously, the logical thing to do, he cuts Elizabeth's head off, attaches it to Justine's body, and then succeeds in reanimating this fusion Elizabeth. They then dance... Mm romantically in an echo of one of the opening scenes when they're dancing. Um, The creature Mm -hmm. then arrives and each of them calls to Elizabeth to join them, like kind of like calling to a dog to say... It's kind of confusing why like Elizabeth ghost is like lured by the creature at all. It's like, why? Because they're playing up the idea that... um, because, yeah, in this adaptation, you're using body parts to create the creature, which, as I've said many times, is not necessarily how you have to do it. But every single adaptation does, because, of course, it does. Mm-hmm. And um, so in this one, they play with this idea that sense memories are a part of the new life. And, yeah, in their, like, first chat, the creature asks Victor, like, what did you make me out of good people, bad people? And Victor says, like... Um, it's just materials, nothing more, or something to that effect. Mm. Or like, and he says, like, well, how do I know how to play the pipe? Like, how am I? Do I have a pre-condition, mm. pre-something for language? What's the word I'm thinking of? Predisposition. Yeah, let's say that. So, like, he's implying that he learnt language as easily as he did because, like, there it was already in his brain, and he. Yeah, because he had Waldman's brain and, you know, Waldman's like a smart guy. (laughs) Yes, he knows the words friend and father and family. He does indeed. Which were the creature's first words. He does indeed. Which was cute. But, I I mean, I think this is a thing that adaptations get into a lot, which is, like, the materials that Victor uses ends up kind Mm. of remembering their past life. Um, Mm. And I I really don't think that's – I don't know. I really don't like that about adaptations. I feel like it's not what the original book is about. Um, Yeah, I think think it kind of doesn't – it doesn't really serve any theme within the novel. No. Like, it's kind of... I don't mind it. Like, I think it's... Because they do it in uh, Penny Dreadful. Mm. And it kind of... I don't know, within the story that Penny Dreadful wants to tell, it works. Yeah, I think but, it works for Penny Dreadful, but that's... I, I mean, like, it works in that world and what they're trying to do there. Mm. But, but, yeah, Penny Dreadful isn't really... Isn't, like, just telling the story of Frankenstein. It's just using concepts and characters from that to tell its well i think its own story is a bit of an overstatement (laughs) of what that show is about but you know the words it says right right like its own world kind of its own world building sort of thing Mm. because i think it's more of a mood setting show than a yeah this is a plot (laughs) but like to get back to the elizabeth thing so Victor is brought her back to life, convinced that he can bring back Elizabeth in of herself, and so is saying like, "Say my name, remember me, remember mm. something." Blah 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 do, and so along those lines, you're just kind of like, well, "Why is she wandering over to the creature at all? Like, what? What is? Like, why is she wandering back and forth between them? Is she? If she's like, no, just sort of her own." 
unique thing that she'll have like no idea if she's remembering things surely she's like hey didn't that guy rip my heart out no thanks bro well I I don't don't know I sort of was just kind of like this doesn't make sense Mm. that is dumb and I don't like this no I I also didn't (laughs) like this scene but for other reasons that will probably get into um but in the end basically elizabeth's is like fuck both of you i don't want to join either of you um she then kills herself by setting herself on fire and And then sets the entire house on fire well she runs through the house as she's burning and yeah the whole house ends up burning down then cuts back to frankenstein speaking with walton um he finishes the story he dies and then the creature comes to his deathbed on the ship they then bring victor to a funeral pyre and just as they're about to set the pyre alight a fire the pyre a fire <laughs> just as about just as they're about to set victor's pyre a fire as you would like me to say um, <laughs> thank you the creature um there's a last moment of dramatics where the ice sort of cracks open beneath the feet. The creature falls into the Arctic Ocean and then he's about, he's like, you know, struggling. And then Walton's like, no, save you. And then the creature rejects Walton's help. Um, he swims over to Victor's funeral pyre and then sets it alight um, and himself with it. The end. And they fade into the distance, their firelight fades into the distance of the icy smog, and Walton's second in command says, which way, Captain? And Walton says, home. And the dramatic music plays. (sighs) Okay. And that's the film. That is the film. I feel like this synopsis went on about an hour. <laughs> yeah, when you were just like, yeah, we're going to do a synopsis, I'm just like, it's a pretty faithful adaptation, and we've just done, like, a 12-part series on, like, what the book's about. Yeah, but I think it was important to, you know... You know, okay. if you've never... You know. If you're a listener and you have never... <laughs> a listener, that's optimistic. <laughs> Um, so if you're listening to this and you had no idea what this, you know, was about, um, now you do. Yay. Or if you didn't listen to our previous series, <laughs> why would Go you? listen to it. <laughs> it's fun. So when Victor first shows up, he's fine. And then somehow then tells the story and then comes back to him. Suddenly he's dying. Like he was, it's not like in the um, book where like, you know, he was on a sled and could barely stand up and he like immediately passes out and he's like in and out of it. And is just sort of like fading away no matter what they do. Like he walks cause they're stuck in the frozen ice. He like just strolls right up to the ship and he's like, weather bound are thou friends. 
but not in those words. <laughs> and, like, is, like, very animated and, like, sort of aggressive. And he's like, oh, for the last time, I got off a thing there. I'm missing there. There's a monster over there. You guys have to help me. Like, there's no sense that he's <laughs> ill. And, you know, cuts to the flashback and then just cuts back. He's like, I'm so tired. And I'm like, Kenny, you were fine. You dramatic bitch.